any of the cast or crew can tell you, I was very masochistic. All of the last things that needed to be written were all Hamiltons. It was sort of the thing I kept saving for last because I don't have to memorize lines. I'm making them up. <laughs> so I do not have the same process of like, oh man, that's a lot to memorize as the other actors in my company. So I always take great care that everyone's got their stuff and then I'll worry about my stuff, which was exhilarating. I'd be lying if I didn't say it was exhilarating that I was still working on Hamilton's last words until the day we froze. That's Lin-Manuel Miranda, who created, stars in, and wrote the book and music for Hamilton, which was just nominated for a record-breaking 16 Tony Awards. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. And I am happy to report we just learned that the National Endowment for the Arts will receive a special Tony Award this year for its invaluable contribution to theater over the last half century. And you'll hear more about this over the next few weeks. Now it's on to Hamilton. Hamilton is a cultural phenomenon, as its 16 Tony nominations, Pulitzer Prize, and Grammy Award indicate. Created by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who himself received three Tony nominations for book, score, and his performance in the title role, the play tells the story of Alexander Hamilton's life and death. But Miranda focuses on Hamilton as an immigrant, and he tells that story with a multiracial cast and through hip-hop-infused contemporary music that nonetheless has some serious Broadway musical chops. The result is a riveting, immediate piece of theater that makes the founding of the country and the virulent arguments around its direction as current as today's news. Lin-Manuel Miranda was born and raised in New York City, where he set his first play, In the Heights, which, by the way, won Tony Awards for Best Musical and Best Original Score. Hamilton itself was six years in the making. It opened off-Broadway at the Public Theater in January 2015 to rapturous reviews. But before it opened on Broadway that July, Lynn insisted on taking two months to cut and polish the script and the score. Not unlike Alexander Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda is nonstop. Hamilton, like, we had like a good six-month run where I was in it and could feel the reactions. Between Off-Broadway and Broadway of Hamilton, I had a list of 25 things with Tommy. Some of them were a line. Some of them were a whole song that we needed to address. Um, but it was my list of 25 things, and we just set about knocking them out. And, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Good, because <laughs> when I was in the theater last night watching the play, I thought, God, I hope he's having fun. Because oh, I was having yeah. so much fun watching it. Well, here's the thing. You know, I get made fun of a lot because I'm on Twitter all the time. But I think of it as the opposing muscle group of writing a musical, where I, I spent a year writing my shot. I spent a year writing every word that is in that song and every note. So, you know what? I'm going to fire off some jokes on Twitter because that's, that's the tricep to the bicep that is writing the musical. And the fun of it really is in trying to top each other for best idea, which begins with your creative team and then grows outward towards the larger creative team and then extends to your actors who then get to play with this material and wear it and find new things. Some of the changes came out of that collaboration. You know, the Schuyler sisters was like, we totally rearranged the music for that. It was very like disco-y off-Broadway and I'd always pictured that song as the Destiny's Child tune and I was like, but we never chased that. Orally. So let's like really go after that. And 
we had three actresses who loved harmonizing. I was in the dressing room next to them, and I would hear them harmonizing all the time. So I was like, let's just build more for them to harmonize to and, and build that into the song as well because they love doing it, and they sound fantastic. So there's stuff like that. That's it's you realize what you have, and you write to it. Certainly, David Diggs, who plays Jefferson, is one of the best technical rappers alive. Period. I know I can throw whatever at him if it's well constructed. He can spit it at any speed necessary, and so that became enormous fun. I think the last line I wrote that went into the show was, I mean, you got to put some thought into the letter, but the sooner the letter to get your right hand man back, you know, like just just to put one more fast rap for David because <laughs> um, I had a bar where I could squeeze it in. So that's that's the fun of it is is in building it, finding the people who can do it. And then once you see what they can do, adding another layer uh, for them to shine. Did you know the minute you read Hamilton and you thought of it as a musical, did hip hop immediately? Yes, that was that was the that was the the actual impetus. It was this is a guy who writes his way everywhere. He writes his way out of poverty. He writes his way into the war through just war of ideas. He writes his way into Washington's good graces. He makes himself useful to Washington as a writer. He was he was not his chief military strategist. He was his secretary. <laughs> he then also writes his way into trouble at every step of the way when cooler heads are not around him to prevail. So I immediately made the leap to a hip-hop artist, writing about his circumstances and transcending them. There's also that self-destructive. So you see rappers who have billions of dollars getting into wars of words with other rappers. It's a part of... Um, that verbal one-upsmanship gone corporate. And Hamilton is no different than that. He's the Secretary of State, but he's still got to answer this guy uh, over here because he's already said something. And so that was my initial leap. But my initial impulse was, I'm going to make a concept album. I was very aware that Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita were albums first. And Andrew Lloyd Webber didn't worry about how they were going to be staged. He just wrote really good songs that told a story. And I said, that's how I'm going to attack this. I'm going to find rappers, and I'm going to make this cool concept album, and then, like, Tommy will figure out how to stage it later. <laughs> and he was the director. And he was the director, yes. Tommy Kale, um, who, by all accounts, is smarter than me. And I'm really glad I did, in retrospect, think of it as an album, even if it was just to myself, because what I got out of myself was a density. You know, I chased the lyrical density of my favorite hip-hop albums, which you don't always get in a musical theater album because you're worried about everyone getting everything for the first time. That's like one of the tenets, right? Make sure everyone understands everything. And like, sure, absolutely, you're telling a story first and foremost. But what I love about my favorite hip-hop albums is I'll catch a double entendre I didn't catch the first time or some alliteration or some wordplay. Years later, I'm still catching it because that's the form. That's the art form. And so by lying to myself, this is just going to be an album. I think I wrote 
something that people keep wanting to come back and get more out of. Oh, are you kidding? So that's been great because I feel like I didn't sacrifice any of the intelligence I know lives in my favorite hip hop music in writing it. I was chasing those guys. And I think, you know, it also works on a storytelling level because I think people catch the surface layer of what's going on in the plot and then they catch double meanings and historical references and hip hop references when they come back for second and or musical third theater references. And musical theater references. As yeah. well. You wanted to tell the story of Hamilton, but as we know, there are many ways to tell stories and everybody has many stories. Yeah. What particular story were you going after? What I recognized in Hamilton, which connected me to the genre of hip-hop and hip-hop culture, but also just felt personal to me, was his relentlessness. I mean, this is a kid who never stopped. There are songs where the other characters are just like, how are you doing all this? And why don't you stop? And why don't you rest? And that's really me as the author, me as Lynn Miranda, <laughs> reading about Hamilton, being like, why don't you stop? Why don't you rest? Why do you write like you're running out of time? Write day and night like you're running out of time. Every day you fight like you're running out of time. Keep on fighting in the meantime. Non-stop. Corruption's such an old song that we can sing along in harmony. And nowhere is it stronger than in Albany. This colony's economy's increasingly stalling. And honestly, that's why public service Just seems to be calling me. I practice the law practically. And I think, I think that relentlessness... I recognize that. I recognize that in people I know, not only in my father who came here at age 18 to get his education and never went back home, just like Hamilton, but also so many immigrant stories I know and friends I know who come here from another country and know, they just know they have to work twice as hard to get half as far. That's just the deal. That's the price of admission to our country. It's a credit to Ron's writing that I read his version of Hamilton and said, I know that guy um, and I think I can write him. And I think he pulled out the best in me. You sang your first song, Introducing Hamilton, at the White House yeah. for the first time, which was certainly a bold move. Well, you, you were not wasting your shot at that I, one. I was not. You know, you don't know how many times you're going to get invited to the White House. It's usually just the once. And they'd asked me to perform something, and I knew I'd written, like, pretty much the rap you hear in the opening number. I didn't have a chorus yet. I wrote the chorus for the White House. I just knew, well, God... I've got a hot 16 about the guy on the $10 bill and the White House called. Like, it would be crazy not to do it. So, you know, I'd never performed that song anywhere outside my shower before I got that call. So I grabbed that. That was the first one. That was the first public performance of, of that song. You know, I'd been writing to a beat I'd created on the computer, and I grabbed Alex Lacamoire, and we figured out what the piano transliteration of that beat would be. And we went. And it was really scary, <laughs> but unbelievably uh, fulfilling. So that's the hard work part of it. The luck part of it is that HBO filmed that evening because they were following some of the other poets who were performing that evening. So the footage of the evening doesn't look like your typical C-SPAN, three-camera White House event. It looks like a movie. You can see the dust flying in the Easter room in the spotlight. So the video went viral. And the audio is good. And the audio is good. And it really looks like some fictional movie about my life where I got to perform it for the president. <laughs> like, I still think that when I watch it. And so I've known that teachers were going to come see this show for six years. Like, I was not worried about selling our show to teachers because they've been using it since 2009. If you look at YouTube comments for the past six years, it's, my teacher showed me this. We saw this in 11th grade history. Teachers caught it and grabbed it and ran with it as soon as it was, it was up on YouTube. So I knew there was an audience for it, and I was like, I, I 
50 more songs. <laughs> yes, you do 50 songs. Yes. No. That is Hamiltonian. That is that is Hamiltonian. But Hamilton Helen would have done that in like a year. I did. It took me six. The casting. I've read critics refer to this as colorblind casting, but it didn't seem very blind to me at all. No, not at all. That just seems misplaced. No, it was just it was just organic to the piece. You know, the impulse of the piece was you can draw a direct line between Hamilton's life and the life of the hip hop artist I grew up revering. So to that end, why wouldn't our show look like <laughs> hip hop culture? And in that initial read of the book, I was never picturing Founding Fathers. I was picturing what artist could play George Washington, what artist could play Hercules Mulligan. Um, Great name. I mean, that's why he's in the show, <laughs> to be honest. His name is Hercules <laughs> Mulligan. And it's the best rapper name I've ever heard. And so that was a part of the initial inspiration. And then Tommy just extended that to our production. He said, we're eliminating distance between the audience and this story. And the genre of music lends itself to this type of casting because these people sound good on these songs. And it's also the added sense of these people are like you and me. It's only amplified by the fact that we have every color represented on that stage. It just eliminates distance between us and the story of our founders. It helps them feel more human to us because it's what our country looks like now. That's about as political as it gets. And we never threw around the terms colorblind or color conscious. I mean, that's how it shook out. But it was always with an eye towards let's get the best actors for these characters and these songs. And that's what we got. It didn't become a big deal until critics started reviewing. They go, holy shit, these guys don't look like the Founding Fathers at all. <laughs> well, I think the surprise was if you read an outline of Hamilton yeah. and you have a cast as diverse as your cast, you somehow think tongue is going to be in cheek somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the combination of the casting, the diversity of music, but the utter sincerity and integrity yeah. that yeah. informs it. And I think it's that combination. Yes, Yes, and, and to be sure, the direct inspiration for the show was the improbability of Hamilton's life. And that is something that drew me totally unironically. I can't spend seven years on something I want to take the piss out of. There are artists who know how to do that. And there are brilliant satirists in the world, and I tip my hat to them, and I am in awe of them. I don't know how to do that. I get bored making fun of something after about two seconds. I have to fall in love with something if I'm going to live with it as long as it takes to write a musical. And that doesn't mean the founders aren't problematic. And that doesn't mean there aren't inherent contradictions in Hamilton. Good God, he's so flawed. He's the flawedest person who ever lived as far as I'm concerned. I get to play in those flaws every night. But the humanity and unlikeliness of the story is what drew me. So I'm just trying to make them as human as possible because that's what Ron did for me in that book. You also did it with the music. The depth of the lyrics, the layers, the rhymes, but it's so matched with the musicality of it. Did you study music a lot when you were a kid? Yeah, I mean, I studied, I did a semester of organ comp. I took piano lessons as a kid, but I mean, most of my studying is just chasing what I love and really learning to listen critically. I think, I think what a liberal arts education gave me <laughs> was the ability to listen critically. And I had teachers, and this is, this is really more in film even than in theater. I had great film teachers who said, if a movie is like boring you, like stop to analyze why. 
And that's always what I tell people. To say like, oh, I loved it, I hated it. That's the least interesting thing you could say. If something is knocking you out, step outside yourself and figure out why it's knocking you out. If something is boring you to tears or repulsing you, check in with yourself. Why is it having that effect on you? And that ability to sort of look at things critically, one, I think it it makes for good writing. I mean, I, I think you're a better writer if you can stand outside yourself and see what's going on clearer. And it also makes me think of genre as very fluid. People who get lost in genre like, but it's hip hop. But people who think hip hop and melody are mutually exclusive are just kidding themselves. Or they heard one rap song in 1982 that just had a drum and have not checked in since. So for me, I'm a big chaser of melody. If Richard Rodgers wrote it, if Taylor Swift wrote it, if it's got a good melody and a good lyrics or a good beat or two out of three, I'm in. And so I also think growing up loving Weird Al helps because Weird Al makes a polka version of every pop song on the radio. And you realize, oh, you can literally boil every pop song down to like a two chord polka jam. So genre is just clothing, and the underpinning is what's going to last. And so I think that's the reason there's 50 genres in all of my shows is because I don't think of it as one genre. It's just about what serves our character in that moment. And thank you for both plays being a love song to New York. Thank you. Yeah, I get a lot of crap for that too, but I, I like getting the love for it. I just like the, the genre of love letter to New York as a genre of music, whether it's Taylor Swift or whether it's Candor and Ebb or whether it's Alicia Keys. Everyone's got their I love New York song in their personal canon, and I wanted to write my entries, and I've got a couple of entries oh, in this Yeah, canon. you definitely have a couple yeah. of entries. I keep walking around singing the Skylar Sisters all yeah, the time. Exactly. You wrote killer songs for other members of the cast. I did. You were very generous. Well, yeah. This is going to be a school play one day, and you don't want one kid to have all the good songs. I still think that the way I make theater is informed by the way I fell in love with theater, which was by doing it. It was not by seeing a ton of Broadway shows. I didn't see a ton of Broadway shows until I was an adult. And so my shows tend to be big ensemble shows because that's like the best school play. (laughs) That is the best school. As many kids as can get in should get in. exactly. The phenomenon of Hamilton. You're number one on the Billboard charts for rap, and you're also the first musical cast album to get five stars. Obama loved the show. So did Dick Cheney. I heard Laura Ingram talking about how marvelous it was. (laughs) Seriously. People who can't agree the sky is blue can agree about this show. What do you think touches people so deeply about this? That's a great question. I think think it goes back to Hamilton. I think, one, I think we'd like to believe if we work harder than anyone else, we can get far in this country. Hamilton is the proto-immigrant story, and everyone can get behind that. Two, I think anything that connects us to the founding in a real way, like I think uh, for me the joy in researching this show and writing it was being forced to find the humanity in the founders. I have to find my way into them to write their songs. That's the only way I know how to write is I have to put their clothes on and figure out what they're thinking and what they're feeling and then when it feels true I write it down. That's the recipe. That's the whole recipe. That's all I've got to work with. And so... That means digging deep and figuring out what is it about Washington that keeps him with one eye on posterity and keep his, keeps such a steady hand on the wheel in those turbulent early years. And even through the war, where even the people plotting against him are forced to apologize to him because he just kind of doesn't die and keeps going. 
And Jefferson, who is such a complicated character, writes beautifully about liberty more than anybody else, but also owns a ton of people, does not extend that to the people he thinks of as property, but grapples with that question in an honest way, in an honest way for his time. And figuring out my way into him and in relation to Hamilton, it became very clear how to figure that out because he has honest beefs with Hamilton. Hamilton is importing all this stuff that Jefferson thought he was running away from with the revolution. What, you're going to bring back banks and stock jobbers and taxes? Like, that's all the shit we ran from. So... He's not wrong. And that was my way into Jefferson, was the stuff Hamilton is introducing is, and Hamilton's perspective is, well, that's what works about the other countries. We're going to do it. That's why they have economies and we don't. Stand with me in the land of the free. Pray to God we never see Hamilton's candidacy. Look, when Britain taxed our tea, we got frisky. Imagine what going to happen when you try to tax our whiskey. Thank you, Secretary Jefferson. Secretary Hamilton, your response. Thomas, that was a real nice declaration. Welcome to the present, we're running a real nation. Would you like to join us? Or staying mellow, doing whatever the hell it is you doing, Monticello. If we assume the debts, the union gets a new line of credit, a financial diuretic, how do you not get it? If we're aggressive and competitive, the union gets a boost, you'd rather give it a sedative. I had to find my way into them. I had to make them human for myself. And I think what is touching a nerve is I think other people are finding the humanity within them as well. They leave with an understanding, or at least a partial understanding, of what they were like as people in some weird way, or they have their head around them, that you don't get when you look at a statue of someone. I think, regardless of your political stripe, to be connected to your country in any meaningful way, or its country's founders, even if you leave being like, oh, Jefferson was a jerk, or Hamilton cheated on his wife, like, to make them human, you can't dismiss them. And you have to reckon with them because we live in their country. I think that's why everyone sees something in it. And I think partly, too, having a diverse cast mm-hmm. brings up, I think, a couple of things. One, who was left out at yes, that time. absolutely. And then also who we can't leave out, who refuses to be left out. Right, yeah, absolutely. It's not lost on anyone that the, the makeup of the stage would never have happened in the 1790s. That was not an option. So I think just by that that lens on it, one, gives you hope for how far we've come. And certainly there's farther to go. But the other thing about the show is that the fights they have in the show, the ideological fights anyway, are the fights we're still having. How often do we get involved in the affairs of other countries? When are we states and when are we one nation? What is the role of government in our lives? Is it big or is it small? It's not an accident that almost every character in our show dies as a result of gun violence. There are things in the foundation of our country that we will always be grappling with. We will always be grappling with them. And that gives me hope because we'll go forward and we'll go backwards, but they were always there. This is not paradise lost. They were always there. Yeah, so do you think then that art really does have this ability to allow us to think about these questions that if we're talking about them in a political arena, it can become very virulent, we cannot listen to one another, but perhaps when it's mounted on a proscenium. Yeah, proscenium is exactly the right word. When you're sitting in the dark with 1,300 other strangers, there's no filter. You're not just looking at the news feed of the friends who agree with you. You're not just looking at the clip of the gaff of the guy you already hated. You're all reckoning with the same story. 
And that is something that happens at the Super Bowl and happens, you know, if we're all watching Greece live together. But other than that, we don't all sit down and watch the same things. We very much curate our reality. I'm particularly living in this because I live in this crazy Hamilton bubble now. So something really has to be on the news to penetrate because I just have my head down and I'm just trying to get through seven shows a week. But we curate our reality to an almost unprecedented level. There are very few things that we all watch together. And when you're in a theater, we make you turn your phone off. We're all going to watch this thing together. So you have to engage with it. And that's the power of theater. I mean, that's the, the thing that theater has on every other art form. Movies have that too, but it's that thing of, of we're all going to sit in the dark and, and watch the same story, and we might laugh together and we might cry together. And you don't get that staring at your computer screen. You don't get that alone at home. There's something about seeing that in a community that, I don't know, is magic about it. Well, when you started Ham for Ham, which is small performances you do for right. people who are waiting for the lottery yeah. of 21 $10 tickets, you thank people for coming and supporting live theater. Yeah. Talk about an unexpected <laughs> new thing in my life. The Ham for Ham show literally came because 700 people showed up for our first lottery. It was summer and it was hot and I didn't want to send 680 people angry into the streets of New York. That's bad juju. That's bad mojo. So I just got up and thanked everyone for coming. And then Tommy immediately was like, we should do that every day. At least while we're in previews, we should just do that every day. Do a little something. We've got a bunch of actors in here. Just do a little something every day for the people who show up. And that sort of graduated into this thing. But again, these people have taken the time out of their lives to come show up, to try to win a front row seat to our show. The least I can do is give them a story if I can't give them a ticket. Because I believe in that communal power. Everyone's like, put it on TV so we can all watch it. I was like, you know something's lost when that happens, right? Like, there is a power to seeing it in a theater with other people um, that I'm, I'm loath to give up until I have to. And so the Ham for Ham is, has been a wonderful way to, to engage with the people who are just trying to see the show and, and leave them with a New York story, nothing else. Oh, man, I saw Kelly O'Hara sing on the corner of 46th Street. I saw Leah Salonga sing. Yeah, I saw <laughs> Leah Salonga. I mean, that's a real thing, and that's um, that's an incredible no, thing. No, that was to... a real thing. I saw it. Yeah. I was there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which was, that was a real thing for me, too. Good gosh. Leah Salonga is such a hero of mine. Are you feeling more hopeful about seeing more diverse people on stage, not just yours? Well, listen, we are by incredible good luck in one of the most diverse seasons in the history of Broadway. It's Allegiance, it's On Your Feet, it's Color Purple, it's uh, Shuffle Along. It's, it's, an it's an incredibly diverse season. I will remind you that last year was the whitest Tonys I've ever seen. <laughs> it was all great shows, but like nary a brown face to be seen, uh, with the exception of maybe King and I. And so for me, it's very hard to assign trends to Broadway because you're dealing with 40 theaters, you're dealing with three theater owners, and it's about what makes it to the pipeline and what's ready for a theater and what can find a home. So it's hard to say, it's over, we achieved diversity, take that Hollywood, hashtag Oscars so white. Like, it's not as simple as that. Our, our Tonys last year were just as white as the Oscars this year, so let's not kid ourselves. But that being said, I do hope that the financial success of On Your Feet, the financial success of Hamilton empowers producers to say, hey, this is actually good business. It's good business to have 
diverse casts. It's good, good business to have diverse stories because that brings in a newer audience and more audience and, and engages us in, in, in a different way. Because that's the only thing that really works. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's got to be good business. Broadway's expensive. It's expensive to mount a show. So the fact that not only that these shows are here but doing well are really what gives me hope because it means, it means there's going to be more. Tomorrow there'll be more of us. That's Lin-Manuel Miranda. He's the creator and star of Hamilton. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.